You're listening to the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RebelsRoundtable, on Twitter at RebelsRound, or on our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in, and welcome to the show. Welcome to Rebels Roundtable, the official podcast of the Star Wars Report covering all things Rebels animated series. And we're here, a little bit earlier than we expected, to talk about the premiere of Season 2, Siege of Lothal. And to talk about this exciting episode, we have Mark... Hey, everybody. How's it going? Our newest member, Bethany. Hey, I'm glad to be joining the club. And the professor himself, Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. I guess I get to eat my words a little bit this time. I think folks are expecting it now. We're going to be talking about the first, I guess you could call it two-parter or hour-long episode that was premiered at Celebration Anaheim. And I know, Bethany, you and Barrett had the opportunity to talk about what you guys had seen with a little, you know, spoiler-sensitive discussion in our Anaheim review coverage, but now we get to talk about it in its glory. Yes, indeed. I'm looking forward to it. I can I can finally talk about it. This is exciting to me, in case you can't tell. <laughs> and it was an exciting episode. Before we get into the specifics, why don't we just go around and talk about what our impressions of this episode were. And since we're going to do ladies first, and I know Bethany has been dying to tell us what she thought of the episode, Bethany, kick us off. For me, this episode, or I I guess really both episodes, because that's how I saw the premiere is just being one big giant episode. Uh, First of all, it was amazing seeing on the big screen but uh, to me, the thing that really stood out the most was Vader. I have to say it's it's Vader all the way. What about you guys? Well, Bethany, I have to agree with you. Vader was really the star of this episode. Recently, Nathan, Mark, and I talked about the most recent novel, Lords of the Sith. And one thing that we talked about in that was that Vader is becoming much more of a threat. And here, it came through loud and clear. Vader... He's not taking anything from anybody, and he is deadly, and I loved it. Nathan, how about you? Oh, yeah, it's a fantastic episode. It's interesting that they conceived it, apparently, from the beginning as one episode instead of a traditional two-parter, which makes me think, you know, maybe we're going to see this a little bit more. Maybe when they've got a bigger story to tell, they'll actually do it in this format instead of trying to cram it into individual episodes and arc it out and whatnot. I I was very impressed. Very impressed. I was expecting some stumbles as we came back in. Uh, Couldn't imagine it being something on par, say, with Fire Across the Galaxy. And it was great. It was right there on par with it. Some great changes, setting up some changes that we're going to be seeing soon. I mean, really, everything I would have expected and hoped for and more, with the exception of a little bit of head-scratching at the very, very end. But I think that's me overthinking a little bit in the last scene, as we'll see. And... Anything that can finally make Idiot's Array have relevance, even if it still sucked, is a good thing, because now all of Season 1 had relevance. See, I think Vader kind of stole the show, but before he came in, I was really digging Ezra's role in this one. I mean, you know, Im- impressive is is easy to say that this episode was. Uh, but see, I didn't get to see it at Celebration. I missed it by the whole Mark Hamill thing. So I was thinking Rex was going to show up. So when it was over, I'm like, where the hell's Rex? What the heck? Like, cause I didn't want to spoil anything. So I was like, la, 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 when people walk by me talking about it. So uh, this whole time I was assuming because of the trailer for season two, Rex was going to show up. You know, I was thinking the exact same thing with Rex. I expected him to show up in this episode. In fact, as the episode came out, I was like, uh-oh, and I re-edited my uh, article for the first of those Sequart books about Rebels and sent it back out because we just done the final edits. And I was like, oh-oh, Rex is about to show up. And I tweaked it, and I sent it out, and he didn't show up, and I had to tweak it again and oh. send it out. I, I had no idea what to expect 
from this episode, spoilers were kept very well under control. All I could go on was the trailer. Uh, I know Mark said, Jonathan, did you have anything to go by but what had been coming out? Did you have sort of a spoiler-ish experience or what? I didn't have a spoiler-ish experience. I knew that there was going to be a lot going on. And obviously, we've seen the preview, so I knew Rex was coming. I guess I kind of didn't think that they would put all their eggs in one basket and have Rex come out the first episode. And also the the title of the episode, Siege of Lothal, I didn't really get that Rex was going to be a part of it. And I'm glad that they didn't put him in yet. You're waiting for a return to Sunny Day in the Void for us to find him or some planet like that, aren't you? <laughs> Are we going to go any episode without you talking about Sunny Day in the Void? <laughs> hey! Hey, what is it they say? Never forget, never again. Well, definitely. <laughs> from my end of things, having seen it at Celebration, I, I guess for me, I had the solace of being able to talk to other people who saw it at Celebration. But it was hard a few times when I was about to say, oh, man, in that moment with Ahsoka. And, you know, it's, it almost comes out of my mouth. And then I realize there's someone around me who hasn't seen it. And it's zip. And I try so hard. So uh, I almost kind of think, you know, Mark had mentioned that the show coming out now, the premiere coming out so far ahead of the actual season airing, uh, maybe because they figure eventually it'll just get fully spoiled or possibly leaked. And kudos to the fans out there who tried to stay away from talking about spoilers for at least a couple of days, because I'm one of those fans who dropped cable, uh, and there's others around the country who don't have Disney XD on their cable networks and whatnot. And it did take a couple of days before this finally did show up on, for instance, iTunes. So to have the community be very conscientious of that, more so than usually in the past, it, it, it was nice. It was very nice to see the community actually sort of uh, protecting each other from spoilers in that sense more than usual. And surprisingly, it's not even on on demand yet. I went when I went to rewatch it before this, I was panicking. Luckily, my wife had DVR'd it, so I was like, "Oh, thank God!" Because I would have thought by now it would have been on on demand. The regular season, it did. So it, it's interesting that they pushed this one episode, but I think it makes sense. Well, let's talk a little bit before we get into the content of the episode about how they promoted this. Again, they must have taken the stealth approach because short of seeing it posted on boards and stuff, th there hasn't been a lot of mainstream media promotion for this, has there? The only thing I can think of is they were showing the trailer for season two that we saw at Celebration Anaheim on Disney XD. I, I recalled seeing that quite a bit uh, when I first you know, got back from Celebration and stuff. I was like, oh, it's everywhere. Uh, but then it did kind of die down a bit. And then we started seeing a little bit more as it, as it, you know, the week before it came out. Uh, but no, I mean, it, it was definitely, I'd say most of May, you didn't really hear that much about it. Maybe an occasional throwback to the celebration trailer. Yeah. I mean, at celebration, it was massively promoted. Uh, I mean, the Rebels premiere was a, a huge event at celebration. People were lining up six, seven hours ahead of time. Uh, and that was the majority of them. There are some who were pretty much there for a good bit longer than that. Uh, so it was definitely a huge event at Celebration. Obviously, the Force Awakens trailer was the main event. Uh, but I would say Rebels was everywhere at Celebration. And Season 2 was definitely hyped. And I almost wonder if Rebels is being more promoted within the fandom in some ways. If, if Disney might perhaps be focusing with a marketing strategy through Lucasfilm more on the current existing fans as well as spreading out. Because I, I know in the past, Disney has taken, I, they take like the top 20 Disney blogs who are not affiliated with Disney and they'll actually fly a member of each blog out to one of the Disney, to either Disney World or Disneyland at the premiere of a movie, let them watch it and then hold a press conference and that sort of thing. So I, I almost wonder if there's a subtle shift in the way they're marketing with how how heavily it was marketed at Celebration compared to the Clone Wars at past Celebrations, which I felt, yes, it was marketed, but it was more celebrated. And there is a little bit of a difference. 
Well, but I'm not just talking about the celebration coverage. I'm just talking about out there. So people maybe who are more the casual fans, you know, not us, who might be interested in it. And the reason I'm bringing this up, because I have uh, a fair number of friends who are what I would say more casual fans. They're parents of the friends of my children and we've been at baseball games and things and they're like oh so you know when is rebel season two going to be coming out and i said well the premieres next week and they're like what i had no idea and a, a lot of people would have missed it I, I don't think that they really put it out there i mean when i think back to some of the premieres for some of these seasons of clone wars they they would have things one thing that comes to mind is you know they have that 20 minutes of commercials before movies they would have those i mean they would have a coming soon for clone war season 5 or something like that there was nothing like that for this you know siege of lothal two parter hour long whatever you had it just wasn't out there i wonder though if that's partly because it's not really a beginning to season 2 like it is story wise but we don't even know yet when season two's regular episodes are going to premiere. There's all kinds of speculation about it. Usually, there's a ramp up connected to that with a home video release of the most recent season of a Star Wars show. But we're not going to get the first season of Rebels for a little while yet. Guess what? September. So unless they're holding off for several months before they actually put out the first episodes of the mainstream season two, there seems to be kind of a weird jockeying for time that Disney's doing at this point. I'm wondering if there was just sort of a, you know, they're going to heavily push season two when season two really gets going. They weren't going to spend the time and the money and whatnot right now because it really was just sort of a one night event. I mean, but you're right. It's promoted about the same amount outside of social media, for instance, as any of like the Lego specials were. There was really no fanfare about it whatsoever. Well, it's almost like it's all being internally promoted. I mean, it's like on Disney XD, you see a lot of it. Uh, I just went and saw Tomorrowland and I saw, you know, the episode seven trailer when, and it wasn't in 3D. So I was all excited about that. But it's like, aside from that hit in certain Disney movies and stuff, like uh, some of my best friends didn't even know the movies were coming out. I'm like, are you not listening to any show I'm doing? Like, come on now. I'm surprised by how few people really know their new Star Wars movies coming out. I mean, uh, where I'm living, more and more people are not going to the movies as often as they used to. So it's like, oh, there's a movie coming. I'm like, how are you missing this? Are you not watching the Terminator Genesis about to come out? You better go and see that and they better have that trailer. But yeah, when it comes to the TV things, you know, Jonathan, you pointed out that they were having those at the beginning of the trailer or uh, at the movie theaters and stuff. I haven't seen anything like that at all. If it wasn't just a regular trailer. Movie theaters suck. Sorry. Sorry. I have to repeat that experience from Star Wars Beyond the Films, if only because of how horrid the experience has been. Uh, I will say, I think Mark's onto something in that it's very Disney-oriented promotion. The Disney, I mean, the Disney XD Facebook page was doing all kinds of stuff with it, and StarWars.com was talking about it, but I don't know. Does, does Disney do this with its other properties? Like, do they branch out and do a lot of heavy promotion for their TV series? They do tons for their movies and their stuff that's on ABC, but for stuff on Disney XD, do they heavily promote ever? Well, I recall seeing, like, a couple on that that the ones like jonathan was saying that before the trailers start and stuff like you'll you'll get like the oh on disney channel you've got the lab rats kind of thing but it's that pre pre pre-show kind of thing and i don't necessarily think every theater does it i think of the three that are somewhat local to where i'm at only one of them actually does that pre-show one and you know now that i think about that was more of a cartoon network sort of thing that they did for the pre pre pre-show but never really Disney. But, okay, enough about how they geared up to it. Let's get into the episode, because I think this is what we're all wanting to talk about. And it opens, as all Star Wars movies should, with action and in space. And we have the ghost participating in what I could only describe as a rebel raid. And we see A-Wings, or at least the precursor to A-Wings, some Corellian Corvettes or blockade runners, whatever we're calling them now, attacking an Imperial convoy. And I got to say, this this was the way to start it for me. This was the way I wanted. This is what I want from Star Wars. And they, they jumped right in. And it felt like the season never stopped. And thank goodness for that, though, right? Because 
there was definitely a real sense of concern about that when you look at the track record of the Clone Wars, right? Clone Wars had a tendency to give you this big ramp up to a huge ending of a season like, oh, I don't know, Obi-Wan and Ventress fighting Maul and Asajj, and then you jump into the next season, and it's like, oh, those storylines? Yeah, we'll deal with them a while down the road. They've shown a better story structure with Rebels so far for one full season. It seems that they've learned that lesson, and now their transition between volumes, so to speak, is going much better. I'm very pleased with how they managed to pull it off, and it didn't feel heavy-handed. There was no need for a previously on Rebels and then throw mm-hmm. us into something right. a couple of weeks later. It was simply, this is the way it is. The status quo changed. We don't need a recap. The status quo and the universe around them is the recap. Right, yeah. It seems so much smoother than the Clone Wars in that way. And and that's a frustration of mine with some other shows that I've watched. And it's it's dropped storylines, especially when they're dropped with no explanation. And especially when they're dropped for so long, you actually forget about them when they pick them back up. <laughs> See, I really like the way that it, it felt like things have moved on like i don't know if it was like one week has gone by since season one ended or two weeks or even a month but you definitely have the feel that these guys have been now working with the rebellion for a while ezra especially really kind of feels like he's kind of broke out of his mold i really really liked that angle that was playing up like ezra seemed a lot more confident than ever before from the time gap perspective for what it's worth we don't know for certain We know that those scars that Ezra has now, those are actual scars. Those aren't the original injuries, presumably. So they're sticking around. So we can't say, well, there's a healing time involved, and that can give us a measure of time. But they actually just recently, in I think it was 178, maybe, in the most recent issue of Star Wars Insider, the Chewie We're Home cover one, there's a story in it called Rebel Bluff, which, of course, with canon, is now equal on par with episodes of the series and the movies and everything. It's a story with Lando that explains why Lando is gone during this episode. But all that we have time-wise, it has basically, it's definitely after Call to Action, because they talk about uh, the message that Ezra sends out. It's very likely after the end of the season, based on the way they were promoting it and talking about it on Facebook, the actual Star Wars Insider folks and the Star Wars Books folks. And Lando says he's leaving... But he's only leaving for a matter of a couple or a few weeks. So if that's the case, we're probably looking at within about a month, if not a little bit less, of where we ended the last season. Just long enough to have a change of pace and give us some fresh action without having to step exactly off of where we left off, but not so far that it feels disconnected. And it's nice to see Kanan kind of chafing under the change of pace. Like, I think that was probably the other angle, aside from Ezra's evolution is seeing Kanan, like, conflicted. You know, here he's working with a military force, and last time he was doing that, it didn't end so well for him. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see there's almost a little bit of role reversal. You see how young Kanan is comparatively, how little Jedi training he had, and you see Ezra having emerged from his sort of version of, like, his miniature trials and having spoken with Yoda he emerges a bit more mature and confident than we first saw him in Rebels the first season, where especially those first few episodes, he was really flighty and not exactly responsible. And what's interesting here is, you know, we're talking about role changes and and things like that. You have Ezra really stepping up almost as one of the leaders of the group. He's the one that makes the decision a little bit later that the group has to go rescue Minister Tua. Other members of the group, Sabine, and who else complains about it? Oh, well, Sabine, um, Kanan. Well, Kanan's not a fan. <laughs> yeah. No, K- I mean, none of them. And and it's Ezra who says, no, well, it's we're not, doing it's, this. It's not none of them, right? Sabine just wants to possibly lay low. Hera's staying with the group. Kanan doesn't like it. Ezra is good with it. Zeb, which would be the only other one to possibly raise an objection, likes it because it reminds him of the honor guard. So it's well, not- no, I'm not talking. I'm not talking about staying with the rebellion. That's later, and we will get to that. But I'm talking about making the decision to go back to Lothal to rescue Minister Tua. Ezra is really the one who says we're doing this, and it's basically his plan. And if you look, the way that the other members of this group are dealing with him are much different. Too. Sabine, it's 
she's not treating him like the kid anymore. She's asking him, are you sure you know what you're doing? Almost giving him a little bit more of a measure of respect. Mm-hmm. Well, who knows? Maybe chicks think scars are cool. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I I think that there's more of a level of respect for Ezra because at this point, he's proved himself several times over and he's not giving off vibes of trying to steal Kanan's lightsaber or trying to run away with all the goodies or telling Hera, no way I'm going after them. Why should I care? It's a marked change in Ezra and the group has noticed this change and respected it too. Yeah, it's something that either Dave Filoni or Pablo Hidalgo were talking about on the Rebels Recon, about how now there's this sort of mutual respect between Kanan and Ezra that's grown and that's affecting the entire group because now Kanan has been seen taking on the Inquisitor, but you've also got Ezra taking the lead, essentially, in going to rescue Kanan, and in that sense, that that strengthened their bond, but also gave them sort of a sense of, uh, of leadership. What I find interesting is the dynamic here, uh, not just the, re- the respect between them, but the growing tension to a degree between Hera and Kanan, because they're both falling back into familiar roles here, right? I mean, Hera is a character that when we met her back in A New Dawn, she was already working with the Rebel group. We don't know exactly how that group fits into this one. We don't know exactly how it fits into Cham Syndulla's group that we meet in Lords of the Sith that carries over from the Clone Wars. But we do know that she's had some previous Rebel activities, and here she is fitting in perfectly with the others about how uh, she prefers being with the group as opposed to having been solo, which Kanan's like, oh, really? You know, what are we, chop liver? But then you got Kanan... And because of what he went through with Order 66, which we're now seeing play out with the Kane in the Last Padawan miniseries, or I guess that arc, because there's going to be more of the Kane in series beyond the Last Padawan, we see him sort of receding back, trying to protect, in a lot of ways, kind of like Ezra last season, right? Trying to protect those that he cares about and not get other people killed and get in over their heads because he doesn't want to experience those types of losses. Again, I think this has some of the best Kanan moments, albeit subtle moments, that we've seen with him in quite a while. But it's an interesting, it's not so much role reversal for those two as it's like when the tension gets high, they're both kind of going to their comfortable places. In her case, it's a group. In his case, it's more solitary or smaller group. You know, Nathan, I think you bring up a really good point about maybe the fact that Kanan is handling things a little bit differently. Early on, you can almost feel in that first battle, he's chafing under some of the things that Harris said. You know, it's nice to have you know, that we're not, it's nice that we're not flying solo. And he's like, oh, you were flying solo? And that he feels that maybe she doesn't need him as much as he would like her to. I could be reading too much into that. No, you're not. I I see it the same way because he wanted to leave. But at one point later on, Hera's like, I'm getting involved. And he's like, if you're going, I'm going. So, I mean, Clearly, he needs her more than she needs him right now. But there are other things as well. It was probably the second or third time that I watched it when they're in the briefing room and Chopper comes in with the transmission and Kanan's like, oh, sure, just display it. Is he trying to get them kicked out? I was wondering that. You know, is he trying to sabotage their relationship with the, I guess, the fledgling Rebel Alliance? Mm-hmm. And Hera chastises him about it and he really comes out about you know this is not what i want to do again the last war wasn't good and for for the jedi or for anyone i'm not sure i'm ready for this i I was just thinking i'm not sure that he was fully intentional about you know i'm not sure that it was his big plan to get them kicked out necessarily so much as him challenging and sort of flaunting a bit towards their authority because he doesn't like where this is going. You know, none of them really had time to think about it before getting into this. They were were kind of forced into it, (laughs) Uh, what with the rescue and everything. And I I think all of the characters are dealing with that in their own way, but you see that real hesitance in Kanan where, you know, he goes from being captured to, oh, well, now we've joined the Rebel Alliance, and he's really just not sure that he likes this or is comfortable with it. And I I think there's some uncertainty there that is showing in the fact that he's not pushing harder. Like he's saying, you know, I don't know about this. I don't really like this. Or he's making that gesture of having Chopper come in and and do that. But he's not he's not going full on. I'm the Jedi. I'm the captain. This is what we're doing. So I, I seem to sense a lot of uncertainty with him. 
Yeah, he went from being the master of his own destiny to chafing at protocol. I mean, I, I think that's like the biggest thing here. His freedoms have been impinged. To a degree, that's true. I mean, he's he and the, the we've seen sort of the roles get codified here as the whole family thing, right? I mean, she Harry even says, you know, make mom and dad proud or whatever it is she says, you know. So in a small group, he's linked into it. But it's interesting that he says, you know, well, this isn't what he signed up for. Well, maybe he didn't sign up for the rules and regulations and the protocol. Maybe he didn't sign up for being part of a large rebellion that actually might have a chance of doing something. But I'm thinking back to a new dawn. What did you think you were signing up for, bruh? You knew what you knew what Hera was doing. You knew why she couldn't be in a relationship with you because of her single-mindedness about what she was doing. And you pushed and pushed to become part of her crew, perhaps even the first. I mean, we don't even know if Chopper was there yet. You wanted to be with her on these missions. And granted, you know, maybe he thought what he was getting into is her pants, eventually. Yes. But it was interesting that, you know, it, it, it's that thing. You know, people say, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. And plenty of times it's, yeah, this is exactly what you signed up for. It's like the politicians getting attacked <laughs> by all sides. This isn't what I signed up for. Dude, you got into politics. Yes, you did. Whereas it's, it's it, again, it, it's, I'm wondering how much of this is more the psychological. It's going back to that comfortable place of this isn't what I imagined. I never thought it would get this big and this dangerous. I thought we were just going to fly around doing this fly by night rebel stuff. Holy crap. Now I'm actually kind of in over my head and I don't know if I want to be involved in another war. Well, Pablo and Dave Filoni have both talked about the aspect of the, the love comment that there's nothing there. But I think that it all comes back to Kanan was the one that's pushing that. And I think that when we saw in A New Dawn, that was him, you know, trying to think that was the avenue. And I think that every time we as the audience feel that there's supposed to be that connection, I think we're getting that vibe from Kanan. I think Hera, clearly, she sees it the way she has it. I, I don't know with Hera. I think in some ways, speaking from a female perspective, I almost think that she and I have not read A New Dawn, so I'll give that as my my uh, sort of caveat. But uh, she, she does seem to like Kanan quite a bit, and I do think that she is a bit of a thing for him. But I almost think that she would never commit to him until she felt like he committed to her cause, which is the rebellion. Yeah, I feel like he's not committed to the cause. He's only committed to her. And I, I think you might be onto something there that she's clearly seeing a difference and wants him to step in 100%. Do it for the right reasons, not just to make her happy. Which is Leia and Han. Right. The other thing that really struck me early about this episode was the state of the Imperial forces on Lothal. And we open with Minister Tua and Agent Callus getting almost snippy with each other over how they're going to deal with the rebel issue. And she's like, I've done everything that I can. And we get the introduction of Vader. I know we said it before, but just from the moment he steps on screen in this, he exudes menace and he exudes capability. He controls the situation from the get-go. And I, I mean, he walks in there knowing that he's going to set up Tua to draw in the rebels and use her as bait. And I just, oh man, he's just masterful in this. Well, yeah, because he's like, he's like, they're either here on Lethal or they're not here. Either way, we're going to lure them back, which was clever. But the other thing that I, I thought was interesting that, that kind of died off was Senator Tua was talking about Palpatine was the reason the Empire was on Lethal in the first place. And she had details for them, but never got to tell them. And I said this last season that the Empire has something big going on on Lothal. And we don't know what that is yet. And I'm, I'm glad that they're not just throwing it out there. This is a tease and I'm, I'm sure that we're going to come back to it. But it's hard to look at this as a cartoon because some of the themes and some of the ways that they're doing this is very adult mm -hmm. and mature. And again, I watched this episode with my boys at least one of the times that I watched it and they got a lot out of it, but I got a lot out of this too. And Nathan, you said it earlier, we were really concerned about were they going to be able to keep up what they started in season one? Was the format, was the, the storytelling ability... Was it going to stay as strong? And if this is any indication, I think they're doing it. Well, it's not only that. They're keeping it strong, and they're also keeping it consistent with everything else that they're producing, right? We asked the question, how exactly can Tarkin stick around? He didn't. 
right? They're keeping it consistent with all his other duties in, say, the Tarkin novel and what it's been hinted at there. Vader, by the end of it, I, I mentioned how it kind of bothers me a little bit at the end. It seems odd that it's like, look, we might have a chance with you know, using Ahsoka to find the Rebels. Aha, what a great opportunity. Yeah, let one of your underlings handle it. Delegate that, Vader. I think you need to go back to your other duties. As much as that kind of maybe go, wait, what? That's also, it's, it's perfectly in keeping with it, what we were talking about, about they need to get Vader kind of off the stage so he doesn't become like Grievous and constantly get defeated. Granted, he doesn't hear, but if you keep him around long enough, you run that risk. They're, they're being very careful with his use. I mean, the fact that... I mean, this is the same series that went back and got Billy D. Williams for Lando, got Frank Oz for Yoda. They got freaking James Earl Jones to play Vader. Not somebody who's played mm-hmm. Vader in the games. Uh, like, it was Sam Witwer coming in to play Palpatine here, which is an awesome performance. I love his Palpatine. But oh, yeah. how much... I-, I can just imagine them sitting in the discussions with James Earl Jones and trying to convince him, hey, we'd like you to do the voices of this character you did years ago for a cartoon on a Disney network. How strong of a story pitch must they have had to make to him about what they're going to do with Vader to get him to agree to that sort of thing at this point in his career really gives me... It it wasn't even Vader walking in that was the gravitas of, uh uh-oh, you know, play the Imperial March. As soon as he spoke, and you got that, this is James Earl Jones who's menacing, but he's not trying to sound menacing. It's just the way he speaks and the way that vocal effect works you're in trouble now, Vader's here. It's very well handled. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. Disney is obviously taking this series very seriously. They're putting a lot into it, a lot of effort, a lot of thought, and you know they're investing a lot of talent into this. So why isn't it a bigger deal? Maybe this mm-hmm. is why they cancel Detours. Take this seriously. We don't want a cartoon out there playing with it a little bit. I I almost wonder in some ways if it's just because they can, because they have the money and the backing and the PR machine. I mean, they have the Disney machine. It's kind of like Lucas, right? We're going to do it the way we want to do it. It's just that Disney's way of doing it seems to be what many fans want more than, say, a lot of the controversies about the prequels. I, I, I hear people talk about how they don't like Rebels because, oh, it's that new canon and we don't want Legends to be gone kind of stuff. But I rarely hear people who watch Rebels or give it a chance turn around and say, oh, this isn't my Star Wars. And you heard that with the prequels even. So Disney, mm-hmm. if it is a matter that they've got the money in the machine to make it happen, it seems that like maybe that's why they're not promoting it as much. It's, it's, just, it's just we're going to do what we're going to do and we're going to rock it and we're going to let the reputation bring people in because this is what they see Star Wars as. It certainly is in keeping with things J.J. Abrams has said about Episode Seven being so much closer to this type of feel. I think most of the EU fans, you know, we had that chip on our shoulder. And I think through Season 1, it's really shown that the quality of not just the models and the story, I mean, everything has won us over. Yeah, I, I, I have seen a little bit of negativity with Rebels uh, when, when you compare it with the Clone Wars, but that tends to be, uh, you know, I don't want to make judgments on somebody's character, but it seems to be from people who really don't want to give it a good chance or who are just who are bitter about the change in general, if that makes sense. Looking at Vader's plan to draw the Rebels back in and discredit them, and then crush them. What do you think about this plan? Because I liked it, and I think it worked masterfully, and really, they played into it. Because it was like a multi-stage. First, he was going to draw them back in or draw them out, which he accomplished. Then, he was going to essentially kill Tua, who was becoming a liability, and blame the rebels for it by getting the populace to kind of turn on them, which... They kind of did. Then in chasing them off planet as I don't think he ever really intended to try to catch them, but he certainly made them believe that they were trying to keep them from escaping uh, much better than they uh, did in episode four and trace them or track them back to the rebel fleet. It's interesting in that this is the Vader we know from the original trilogy. Right. This is Vader putting the homing device on the Millennium Falcon to find the Yavin base that better work, according to Tarkin. This is Vader 
uh, capturing Han Solo and Leia in them as bait to bring Luke to Cloud City. Or this is Palpatine letting the Rebels get the plans to the second Death Star and the knowledge of its location so he can lure them into a trap and try to wipe them out because it'll be quite operational when your friends arrive and all that. This is Vader being a Sith. And it's interesting in that most of the time in the way the Legends continuity built, especially because of how much uh, the Marvel, the early Marvel days and the pre-prequel EU sort of mystified the character and then it was demystified so much by the prequels, it's almost like we didn't tend to get this side of Vader in a lot of the continuity that built over the span of decades. And here, he's a much more Sith-esque Vader, like he should be in keeping with the films. I, I think it's perfectly fitting. And he didn't get to that point where he felt like the mustache twirling villain. Every time they got away, it felt believable. And it yeah. didn't phase him. It didn't phase him at all. He's like, oh, well, I know what to do next. Oh, they got away? Yeah, we got a homie beacon or something. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that was in part what made him so much more terrifying, I think. It's clear that the shift from the Clone Wars to Rebels, that they, they truly want to show us that Anakin is gone that maybe there's that 1% left waiting for Luke to save him. But as far as Rebels is concerned, Anakin is gone. There's just, there's no hint of that. No hint of it when he finds out about Ahsoka. No hint of it when he talks to the Emperor about her. No hint of it when he's dealing with slamming a young boy against the wall and threatening him and manipulating him about his master. This is Vader in his Vader prime. Well, yes and no. I mean, because I just got done reading The Lords of the Sith, and in that we saw him internally, he'll think about being Anakin. And I like the fact that in this show, you know, you're right. And he's talking about himself in the third person and stuff like that. But I like the fact that, you know, we're seeing in the books and stuff that angle of it's there, even though he's doing everything he can to keep it stepped down. Well, it's interesting, though, you mentioned Lords of the Sith, right? Because of the timing. That's five years after Revenge of the Sith. This is four years before A New Hope. There's a 10-year gap between these stories in which he can get that under control. We see the steps of it. The, the canon is building these steps of seeing how he sort of sheds the Anakin persona and takes the Vader persona as the true self to the point where he would think of himself in the third person as Anakin Skywalker, you know, the apprentice of Anakin Skywalker and so forth, that he could speak to Vader or speak to Palpatine Again, in third person, technically about himself in The Empire Strikes Back. And we see this starting point in Lords of the Sith, or a midpoint, whatever you want to call it. And then you get now into what Marvel is doing. And Marvel's sort of picking up from here, which is this, you know, here's this Vader that was just personifying himself as the Sith Lord and almost ignoring the Anakin side of him. And now Marvel's doing this sort of opposite and trying to chip that away and say, okay, well... You know, it, when he finds out about, you know, Luke's identity or when he starts the hunt for Luke to lead us into Empire that'll eventually lead to, you know, him trying to recruit Luke over and over again, heading into Jedi and so forth. Sort of that breaking of Vader and letting the Anakin Skywalker side come back out. It's it's almost as if, oh my god, Anakin slash Vader actually has a story arc between eras that he never really had before. It's a very good point, I think. And it's it's one where, you know, you wonder at that because, it, you know, it's it's like he fell to the dark side and then he's a one note character. But now we might start seeing that that isn't necessarily fully the case. Talking about Vader, let's bring it back to the episode and talk about the moment where there was the confrontation between Vader, Kanan and Ezra. And. That was something that, I don't know, I, I'm curious to get your guys' impression because it just felt to me like Vader didn't want to necessarily defeat them at that point. He wanted to, pl I mean, maybe kill Ezra, but he was, pl I, I just got the impression he was playing with them. Oh, yeah, he was totally toying with them at that point. And I think, like, one of the, the cool things about his reveal was, like, it wasn't like with Darth Maul where the doors slid open and there he was. It was like, he was there. Like, it was the perfect trap. He, I mean, he could have been there the whole time just, stepped out from behind the shadow or something. But yeah, you definitely got the impression from the way he was talking to Callus and stuff. And he was talking about, you know, this is what we're doing. This is why I want to do it and stuff. And even later when he's talking about, you know, go to Tarkin Town and wipe it out because, you know, they, they have sympathy for these people and that's a weakness and we need to exploit the weaknesses. I mean, he was, he was 
taking and marking off every check off of the checklist that you need to to hose with the rebels. You know, he's okay. I've got them yeah. on the run. I've got them looking for this lady. I mean, I'm waiting for them. Hmm. That's a very good point. In, in that I was so caught up in the moment when I first watched it, I thought for a minute that Vader was truly going after them and had failed in the sense that they they managed to distract him and escape. But now I, I think you guys are right. Vader was toying with them and maybe part of that toying would have been killing Ezra or really wounding Kanan. I think his overall goal was to catch all the rebels and he sees the rebels as a threat not necessarily, he does not see Kanan as a threat as much as he sees Obi-Wan, even in his t- discussion with the Emperor, or even when you see it in A New Hope, where Obi-Wan is a threat to be reckoned with and needs to be dealt with, whereas Kanan is a lead. Kanan is a lead to the Rebels and the lead to Ahsoka and a lead to other Jedi. I had to wonder if Vader had a chance, would he kill Kanan or would he kill Ezra? I mean, on one hand, it's like, well, if you kill Ezra, you leave Kanan in a really vulnerable spot. and Maybe you could try to turn him, but he's already older. It would seem like the better way to do it would be kill Kanan and then convert Ezra. We sort of lean that direction, right? He was speaking somewhat like the Inquisitor would, just in a little less, you know, come to the dark side type fashion. Yet, you know, the whole thing about, you know, your master's deceived you in this idea that you could become a Jedi, which you expect there to be a, but hey, here's this other path that I've got for you. Uh, I yeah. I would almost say it's like a middle ground. I don't think so much that it was that he thought of them as a, as a threat or not, so much as he was sort of feeling them out. If they individually were a threat enough, he probably would have killed them. If he could have made use out of killing Kanan to get to Ezra or vice versa, he would have. But in the situation, I don't want to say that Vader's become a stoic, but he's much more of the chess player in that he's going to do what needs to be done at the moment. If he can reach a bigger goal, he's not going to squander those resources to get to that goal. But I don't know, it, it's almost like he sees them as I mean, their threats, but there's such a bigger threat out there that he's finally, unlike probably Anakin, he's finally seeing the forest for the trees, right? He's not focusing on, oh, I can kill this person right now and it'll be done. But then here's this other movement out there that might be inspired by it, or that might get away. Now it's the, if I have to kill you, I will. But I'd much rather my Sith machinations play out instead, which is so, again, I love it for Vader. And it's such a a departure from Anakin. But in a sense, it's kind of where Anakin was going with his maturity throughout the Clone Wars, in a sense. I mean, he becoming much more like Palpatine with every passing story element throughout the prequels. Mm, oh my gosh, I hadn't yeah. even thought of that. And here's something that I thought. Vader wasn't necessarily trying to kill them. He was trying to humiliate Ezra to some degree, but I think he was trying to scare them. He was trying to get them to act without thinking. Because again, kind of coming back to it, his ultimate goal was to go break the rebel force, which means going back to the fleet, such as it is. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that was his goal. And it worked. And it worked. You're right. But it worked more than he thought. It it not only worked to send them back to the fleet. I mean, look at the reaction that Kanan had. Even more so than Ezra or anybody else, Kanan knows what a Sith Lord can do. He was around for the Clone Wars. He is freaked the heck out. Well, the other thing about it, too, that you can see the chess angle is when Sabine's shooting at Vader and Vader uh, sends the blaster bolts right back at her, he hits her twice in the chest plate and one in the helmet. But when you stop and you look later on and you see where those chest plates are, he could have easily moved those blasts and killed her. He clearly kept her alive. Well, he just wanted to give her the excuse to change her armor later in the season along with her hair dye like we've seen in the previews, right? Right? It was all product placement. That's why he was holding the Pepsi while he did it. There you go. Okay, well, let's talk before we get into what I would consider the climax of the episode, let's talk about some of the other new things, the new elements that they've added to the Rebels, which are the Rebel forces. We have Commander Sato. We have a new capital ship, which looks like somebody grafted a Corellian Corvette and something else together. And, and you do have this new dynamic. I, I talked about it earlier. We um Phoenix Squadron, right? Mm-hmm. Which looked, me being the ship guy, those looked like maybe early prototype A-wings. And the reason I say early prototype is because they didn't seem as fast as the TIE Advance that we see later and 
and I'm assuming it's still part of canon that A-Wings are still probably the fastest of the starfighters at the time of Battle of Endor. Mm-hmm. At least I, I would assume so as well. You know what I noticed about Sato is how unquestioning he was of Hera and how he extended that to, I mean, it almost seems like what he sees is her crew. Uh, despite the fact that Kanan had Chopper play the transmission and that Kanan was acting rather, uh, well, petulant and uncertain and not very helpful, he's pretty unquestioningly letting them come in and have a huge say. And that shows me again how much background Hera has with the Rebellion. I wonder if part of it also is maybe that Ahsoka gave them a nod, right? I mean, they met her uh, in action back at the end of season one, and here... She's sort of the, uh, they describe her sort of the Obi-Wan type character, playing sort of the general role, but eventually sort of a mentor type or an older Jedi type role. And that could carry a lot of weight to be able to say, hey, here's someone that I trust. You can actually pull this off. May I say, this is the perfect use of Ahsoka. Let's not throw her out there and make her the focus of everything. She is part of this rebel group. She's not part of the ghost crew. She's part of the rebel, well, what's going to be eventually the rebel alliance, this particular rebel band. And she is playing a role that's different than what many feared. And thankfully so. Well, as Fulcrum, I mean, she's been working with Hera for quite a while in a rebellion type manner. So I, I, I definitely got the feeling that Hera is, if she's not part of what little rebellions out there, the other cells see her and recognize what she's doing, even though she's not taking that next step and becoming a full-on leader in her own right. Whereas Ahsoka is right there. I mean, she is clearly putting out that feeling like she's one of the leaders of the rebellion that we're seeing right now. Yeah, yeah. I do find it also interesting, the design choices that they use. I mean, it's a medical frigate, I believe it is, that they brought back and repurposed here to make it into uh, the Rebel flagship that looks very cool. Uh, They've shown us now the ability for the blockade runners, or the corvettes, whatever you want to call them, to be able to now connect. uh, I think it's on bottom and on the two sides, have little docking things come out to connect to three A-wings at a time to allow them uh, to carry them into battle, which I thought was interesting. And they are calling them A-wings. There was a lot of issues with A-wings versus, you know, the droid series and when they were supposedly created in Legends later and all this kind of stuff that just led to a real convoluted backstory in Legends. It looks like at this point they're just saying, hey, it's an A-wing. Although, by that matter, I think Jonathan mentioned the, the prototype, prototype concept. We see the TIE Advanced here, Vader's ship, still being referenced in the the notes on StarWars.com as a prototype of it, which is odd because we just saw a prototype, which was the Inquisitors. So he's is like a prototype of the prototype or an advanced off the prototype, except not as cool looking <laughs> as the prototype. And yet it's still a prototype, as far as we know, in A New Hope, four years down the line. Man, they just do not produce these things fast enough. Well, I think maybe it's... It, it could be a roving test bed because one thing that Vader's TIE Advanced had that the Inquisitors didn't was obviously a hyperdrive. This is a ship that's able to operate independent of the fleet, and that's why he was able to get out there. And talking about getting out there, I mean, how amazing was that? The way that Vader and his piloting ability and the way he used that ship just took apart the Rebel forces. There's oh, yeah. at one point where he flips it, And guns down the two A-wings that are pursuing him, and nobody's able to touch him. I Oh, that was just great. I loved watching that. That was Uh, the Battle of Star Galactica remake version, you know? (laughs) That was the one thing when I saw those Vipers do that on that show. And I missed that the first time. When I was watching the second time before we sat down for this, I'm like, oh my god, he flipped it around, he's flying it backwards! Like, that was super exciting for me. Yeah, yeah. And and it was so... Like, that was the moment where I started to wonder if maybe Ahsoka was getting sort of a hint of a feeling, because there are very few pilots, even Force-sensitive ones, who can fly like that in the galaxy. I mean, Anakin's piloting skills, Vader's piloting skills are well-known and documented. And so that's... ah. I mean, can we dig into the Ahsoka ending yet? Or? Yeah, that's what I want to know. I mean, you're you're there, and uh, let's do it, because that's something that we've talked about outside of recordings of did she know or didn't she? And I'm of the opinion yeah. 
she knew. I mean, when you saw her little lip thing, and then when her eyes opened, you had the little white streaks around her, and she practically blacked out. I think it's pretty clear. I mean, Vader knew the apprentice lives. I think she had to have known Toe. She knew yeah. that the person in that fighter was her was her previous master. I think that maybe, and perhaps it'll come out later, it's the galaxy thinks that Anakin Skywalker is dead. That he died yeah. during the purge. And I wouldn't be surprised if Ahsoka believed that as well. And this was the moment where she realized, oh no, Anakin not only didn't die, he turned. Mm-hmm. And it seems to shake her to her very foundation to the point where she didn't tell anyone what she knows. And she obviously knows. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Anyone else feel like when Vader says the apprentice lives that that was her death sentence? I mean, cause I literally dropped the F bomb right in front of my whole family and I just was like, Oh, beep. Oh, beep. Oh, beep. And they're like, what? And I'm like, she's dead. She's dead. I was expecting, you know, I'm like, if it ain't happening now, it's happening at some point. He's not going to stop till he kills her. There's, oh my God. She's, she's screwed. Yeah. That was my, well, and she, <laughs> she even says it that, you know, they're, they're all coming now. And mm-hmm. she she seems pretty resigned when she says it and worried. But it's it's that look to at the very end when I, I believe Kanan and Hera are talking in the background when she sort of squints that that sort of uncertain scowl, not not of anger, but that huge level of uncertainty. I almost wonder how much is she still attached to Anakin because, I mean, they did leave on good terms, and she always felt strongly for him and always had a little bit of suspicion towards the Jedi since because of the way that she left the Order, would be my thought. If she didn't tell them about Anakin, what if she doesn't? What if she thinks she can save him? Well, I think she's got a lot of issues that she needs to deal with here. Yeah, Because yeah. when you think Anakin was the Jedi that she was closest to. She and Anakin were bonded in a way because I think, and this is my own kind of projecting here, Anakin was always the Jedi who made those connections, who he he had attachment because of how he grew up and he had an attachment to her and he cared about her. He he wasn't the stoic one and I think she responded to that. I mean, we see how other Jedi are dealing with the two of them and and seeing that, you know, okay, this master-apprentice bond or this relationship isn't really necessarily what it should be. So now she comes back probably having mourned him at the time that she thought he died mm-hmm. and now coming back and realizing that he's alive and that he's turned. It's got to feel like a betrayal of everything that she thought she believed. And how is she going to cope with this? Because her whole existence has been turned upside down. And you know that at some point, they're going to have a confrontation. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be epic. But how is she going to cope with it? Because Vader seems to be like, okay, well, Anakin's apprentice is still alive. And how can I use that? He, His attachment is gone. He's, as Vader has achieved the... I guess the the level of detachment that the Jedi always wanted to see from him. <laughs> but but is that truly so? Or why would he be the one to hunt her down? Because it was the Emperor who had to tell him, basically, no, you're going to send somebody else after her. And I wonder if that's the Emperor thinking maybe Vader still has a little bit of attachment to her. And if she were doing the right thing, if she had no unhealthy attachment left to him and not to say that she shouldn't be sad or upset or feel betrayed. But if she were doing what she was supposed to do, she would immediately tell the rebellion who Vader is, because that would be a huge score for the rebellion. If at least to to learn more about their enemy. See, that's where I get curious as to why Palpatine wanted them to check out Lothal. Did he have suspicion that Ahsoka was there and, and hence did he use Vader as bait to lure her out some way, some fashion? And as soon as he had that confirmation, he's like, get out of there. <laughs> I've got an idea here. I need you out. You know, you've done what you need to do. Now, I took it a little bit differently, guys. When the Emperor instructs Vader to send another Inquisitor, I almost take it kind of like during a fox hunt. They, they send the hounds. 
to flush out the foxes or to draw them out. And I'm wondering if that's what the Inquisitor is going to be. I mean, we know from a storytelling point of view, they're probably sending the Inquisitor so somebody can be defeated without, you know, lowering Vader's credibility. But possibly they want to flush her out. And then when she's exposed, Vader or the Emperor will swoop in. But, you know, I hadn't thought about it. Perhaps the Emperor is a little concerned that because Ahsoka and Vader had this relationship and it had that relationship had such an impact on Anakin slash Vader's development that that does insert a little uncertainty. And that's something that they, they touch on in Tarkin, that the Emperor never was able to get Vader and Tarkin to work as cooperatively as he wanted because there was the issue of Ahsoka between them. Well, you know, the whole thing with uh, Ahsoka and, okay, whether or not she knew, you almost have to assume that she knew, if only because they added in the last little facial expression for her, right? I mean, we get her having the connection to Vader in the fight. We wind up having them flat out ask her, do you know who or what he is? And she says no. And that may be true from a certain point of view, right? She doesn't know what happened. She would have figured he was dead. Uh, he, of course, also would have figured she was dead, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't have said the apprentice lives. So if there's attachment, that doesn't necessarily mean that he, he's he been able to shut it off. I mean, if you, sh- it's not that he shut it off and wasn't looking for her or something. If he assumed that she was dead, there was no need for that attachment to really be going on inside his mind, going on inside his heart, so to speak. But then after she answers that, she immediately turns and you get that quick close-up where she makes the quick little hmm expression where you realize, yeah, there's more to this. Whether she knows it's him or thinks that it's somehow related to him, we don't know for sure. But it seems like she must know. And this was a man whose secret she was keeping. Remember, it's not just that they were bonded. It's not just the Master Padawan thing and the friends thing and how uh, she had to walk away and it was a troubled choice for her and she would have worried about him afterwards, etc., etc. Remember, she understood what he felt about wanting to leave the Order sometimes because she had already figured out the whole thing with Padme. So this is someone for whom protecting him, whether from himself or from others, has kind of been her forte in some form or another throughout the years that she would sort of feel protective of of not letting him perhaps get killed by the rebels. You know, let's capture him or just not do like the Force Unleashed 2 and let's actually capture him and then see how the heck he gets free. Um, But capture him or do something uh, less lethal than just blowing him to bits or, or killing him in some other fashion. The question about their confrontation in the future and and why Vader would look at this and why Palpatine would look at it this way. For Vader, this is an opportunity, it seems. You know, this is someone he had a connection with and he could use that, right? Yeah, it's Anakin's Padawan, but he immediately sees the opportunity there to use her to go after the other rebels and so forth and and to sort of make her a pawn, but an easier pawn, right? Because he's been manipulating people and their actions this entire time. Now, Here's someone he knows well enough he could play her like a fiddle and use that as long as she goes with it. But the confidence to feel like, yeah, and if she doesn't do what I expect her to do, I could cut her down. I'm that attached. Yeah, we'll see if he actually is in the end. For Palpatine, yeah, the idea of being attached from his past self should be an issue. There should be some worry on Palpatine's part, but at the same time... He should have already sort of passed these tests with Lords of the Sith and so forth already. All these different things the Emperor's been putting in front of him. So I wonder if part of this is more of a, let's see if he'll listen to my instructions, or if it's simply a, yes, we've got them on the run. The mission for right now is done. We've got other stuff that I need you to do. Send some Inquisitors. Send the Bloodhounds. When they find them, then you can get back in the action. But I can't have my right-hand man out there spending all his time hunting them down any more than in the Legends continuity. They constantly beat over the head. You can't keep looking for the Jedi. There's other stuff to do. Or you can't keep looking for the for the pilot who destroyed the Death Star. We've got other stuff to do. It's like Vader does have more duties just like Tarkin does. Yeah, yeah. Well, and to me, there there could also be an underlying of, I wonder if Vader at this point is getting to the point where he is possibly looking for an apprentice like he did with Luke to want to overthrow the emperor and rule himself. 
And that could explain the way that he was speaking to Ezra. That could explain his desire to potentially go after Ahsoka himself. And that could ex- also explain why the Emperor kept him away. So it could be for a combination of all of those reasons. But one reason why I think Ahsoka must have known, and one reason why it was obvious, was because she and Kanan could equally sense Vader's presence. So why would she be the one to basically faint and and have that look on her face when she realizes who it is and Vader realizes who she is and does not? Something you just said there Uh, about the idea of having him looking for someone to stand up against the Emperor, right? To have someone as his Sith apprentice... You know, to to uh, to be more powerful than the Emperor. I can overthrow him. We can make the galaxy like we want it to be, like he had been saying to Padme at one point back in Revenge of the Sith. It's interesting to me that it begs the question of, well, perhaps his focus on Luke and what we have now seen within the Marvel series and how that is now unfolding is because of failing at trying to recruit Ahsoka into that exact same role. But there's another part of me that thinks back to the Force Unleashed uh, granted, that's Legends now, but there's this great moment where the apprentice Starkiller, Galen Merrick, realizes he has been betrayed by Vader. He basically says something along the lines of, you know, we were never going to overthrow the Emperor, were we? Or you were never planning to. And Vader's line is, not with you, no. Which also begs that question of, you know, how many plots within plots might he have? Maybe he will try to recruit Ahsoka. And even if he does... That doesn't necessarily even mean that Ahsoka is who he would intend to have as a true Sith apprentice. He may Dooku and Asajj Ventress her and string her along in some way to manipulate. He, the whole smorgasbord of Sith manipulations are now on the table now that we're finally getting a Vader that acts like a Sith. Well, on the other side of that, too, is that Vader could have researched Sidious. You know, well, you had Darth Maul. He was a Sith Lord out there. We had Darth Tyrannus. You had Tyrannus training this person. You know, I mean, what if he finds out that that Plagueis was alive during Episode 1? Granted, that right now is, is still Legends. But what if he finds out, well, hey, Sidious was training all these Padawans or all these apprentices this whole time. Why shouldn't I be looking for people? There is one fear, though. Vader has to be very careful. Whatever he does with Ahsoka. He's got to make it look like he's trying to kill her or use her. If he does try to recruit her, I am reminded, in canon now, I'm reminded of the Clone Wars. You were my apprentice, but now you are a rival. Boom. Palpatine's not going to stand for that crap. True that. Mm-hmm. So, well, I mean, a lot to think about. My question is, where do they go from here? I'm really looking forward to what this season is going to give us. We know that they're expanding beyond Lothal. We know that we're going to get some old friends in from the Clone Wars, and we know that we're certainly not done with Vader or Ahsoka. So I think we're all in store for a really great season two, and I can't wait to make this journey with you guys. But one note to our listeners about our proposed summer programming, because we don't know when season two is going to start, we're going to put our proposed summer school on hold. Uh, We will eventually get to it, but it would be difficult for the panel to start that type of a project and then have to stop when we start recording for the regular episodes of Season 2. So those of you who want commentary, just hang on with us. We're going to get there. He's so optimistic. (laughs) But... Until Season 2 starts in earnest, I want to thank my panel members, Mark, Nathan, and Bethany, for, as always, a very enlightening discussion. Thanks for having us. It was fun. Always a pleasure to be on. Quite so. And folks, also keep an eye out. As Jonathan mentioned, he is on with us discussing Lords of the Sith in an upcoming episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. And eventually when we cover Dark Disciple, we'll probably drag him into that too. And I'm always thrilled to be there. So, until next time, long live the Rebellion. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at Rebels Round. 
Also, be sure to visit RebelsRoundTable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit RepublicForces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Okay, well, Good enough point. about <laughs> Couples counseling is over. This is not Dr. Phil, <laughs> Jonathan says. <laughs> We're going to end things now because I, I don't want to keep Bethany up too late. And then we can all go laugh at Barrett Thank for you. being an hour late. No doubt. <laughs> I can see why you edit these things. <laughs> yeah. I have to. I couldn't leave it. Did you Did you hear the not safe for work edit uh, uh, bloopers that we posted only to Facebook, not to the site from the season wrap up? They're horrible. But apparently Barrett knows the parts of the body edit. that don't get burned by fire. <laughs> Wait, wait, you saw it, but Bethany, did you listen? Thank God, no. Be afraid, be afraid. <laughs> I did not. I did not. I was like, you know what? I like my relationship with Nathan as it is right now. <laughs> <laughs> it would change. It would change what's, your perspective of us all. What's the line from a Hamlet's father? Horrible, horrible. Oh, horrible. <laughs> That was us. That was us. Oh, goodness. And out. Okay. Sam, put down that puffer pig! (laughs) The the puffer pig, by the the way, was still around. Did you get the part where he pops up out of the thing? Have you smelled me? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was... Yes. (laughs) Good moments like that, yeah. There were a couple other things. You know what? We didn't get a chance to talk about them, but one, when... Lando's droid. Oh, Southern droid. What the hell was with that accent? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that was weird. Lando's will rise again. Lando's droid was out there. Uh, if you actually open up his chassis, you got a Confederate flag, or at least until <laughs> until they're about to send him off to the scrap heap. Playing Dukes of Hazard. I mean, seriously, it was sort of like I, I that that would have been that would have been a point I would have brought up if Barrett was here. I and... see the black man. <laughs> Has to be the one with the southern ass sounding droid. <laughs> Although apparently that droid is oh, the one goodness. that's been taking care of the puffer pig, according to the short story. It's it's told to take the puffer pig out and like walk it to keep looking for minerals. <laughs> so I, that that sucks to be Lando's droid anyway. Well, no, I just oh, think goodness. I think he, I think he sounded like like a. You know, your stereotypical southern plantation owner. Y'all, if you guys know how many times I got to pick up after that puffer pig, I swear, if I pick up one more puffer pig pellet, I'm going to shut myself down. Frankly, Cal Reese, I don't give a damn. (laughs) I I think it's just somebody's idea of payback. Oh, goodness. Wow. Oh, and the only other point that kind of had me scratching my head is when they're rushing back into or when they're sneaking back into or sneaking into the imperial base and you've got ezra in the cadet uniform and kanan in the stormtrooper armor i found it very interesting that ezra found the time to change back into his crappy outfit (laughs) i mean it's like we're in such a big hurry i'm gonna change yeah well constraints of the show budget Kanan too. I was like, I'd have worn that. I'd have been in that armor the whole time. I'd be like, you yeah. couldn't get me out of I- it. Wait, you please stop talking.